from BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast, is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste, or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products, because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Hey, this is Christina Quinn. I'm the host of Try This, the Washington Post's new series of audio courses. The idea behind Try This is to become better functioning humans without having to comb the internet for countless hours. In our first course, we learned how to sleep better. Now, we're going to learn how to make our friendships stronger. I'll offer expert tips that are doable, and I'll keep it short. So let's do this. Glasses in session. Find Try This from the Washington Post wherever you listen. On this episode of Newt's World... We're going to be looking at the rise in prices, the potential threat of inflation, and what Americans should pay attention to in the upcoming economic news. Inflation is a hidden tax. It is a powerful and often unseen and unstoppable way for a government to pay for its goods and services without raising visible taxes that make people angry. Gas skyrocketed by 9.1% last month. Since February, Prices of fruits and vegetables have risen by nearly 2%, and the index for meats, poultry, fish, and eggs has risen by 0.4%. Before the pandemic began, the national average for a pound of bacon in January 2020 was 4.72. While last month, the price had soared to $5.11. According to exclusive supermarket point-of-sale data from Nielsen IQ, ground beef is up to $5.26 a pound, from 502. Bread is up to 266 a loaf from 244. And the price increases are more in certain cities and geographic areas. Here to help us make sense of what is causing the rise in prices and what we should expect for the future is my guest, Dr. Jason Lusk. He is the distinguished professor and head of the Agricultural Economics Department at Purdue University. If you don't mind, Dr. Lusk, let me welcome you. What got you interested in economics and what got you interested in agricultural economics in particular? Thanks for having me on, Mr. Speaker. It's 
a real privilege? That's a big question. I grew up in a very rural area of West Texas. My family was not in farming directly, but my parents were school teachers. My dad is a school administrator. So I had the kind of family that didn't want their kids sitting around the house idle during the summers. So I spent my childhood working for neighboring farms. So that got me interested in agriculture and I got a degree in food science. So got some experience working in the food processing side of things, but really liked the economics and the interaction of agriculture, food, and people. And I've been blessed to have a great career to be able to work on those things. It's really amazing to be able to get up and work on things that you're really interested in every day. As a distinguished professor and as head of the Agricultural Economics Department, you both teach and do research? That's correct. So here at Purdue University in in Indiana, we're one of the major land-grant universities, one of the largest agricultural colleges in the country. So research is a big part of what we do here. And so trying to understand what's happening to farm and food prices, impacts of new farm technologies, trying to create new farm technologies, new digital agricultural technologies that are pretty exciting. We're teaching students. I have about four and 500 undergraduate students in my department that are getting degrees in agribusiness, agricultural economics, sales and marketing. They're going to work back on the farm or they'd be going to work in fertilizer, seed sales, agricultural banking, and all the rest. By the way, I'm a big fan of the president of your university, who at everything he's done, I've known him since he was in the Reagan White House in the 80s. Mitch Daniels is just an astonishing person, and his policies have actually taken most of the inflation out of university costs at Purdue in a way that really should be an example for the whole country to look at. He's a fantastic boss to have, a real visionary and a real leader, I think. And to your point, where all the other universities seem to have gone right, we've taken a left. Or maybe I should say that the other way around, (laughs) where all the other universities have gone left. (laughs) We've taken a right in, in the sense that we've held down the cost of education. And under Mitch Daniels' guidance, I think we're almost into 10 years now of no change in tuition. And you can imagine that doesn't make everybody happy on campus, but I think if we're thinking about our customers, about our students and the families that are coming here, that ability to still provide an affordable education is something that I think is really paramount. That's great. I'm hoping to get him to agree to come and do a podcast explaining how he's done it, because I think there are a lot of people around the country who'd love to know how to apply that kind of leadership to their institutions. But, you know, recently on a blog that you have at jasonlusk.com, you spent some time talking about food price inflation. Would you talk in general about what you see as an economist as the key factors that push prices higher? Sure. And you alluded to this at the onset here, but we are in a bit of an inflationary moment here. Really, for about the past six or seven months, we've seen some pretty remarkable food price increases. There's a variety of factors going on. One thing is COVID has introduced a lot of costs and supply chain challenges in the supply chain. So, you know, it's been over a year ago now when people went to the grocery stores and were probably surprised to see shelves empty. It was certainly the first time in my lifetime I had seen that. And a lot of that just had to do with, you know, a big increase in demand to buy food through grocery stores instead of through restaurants. And so all the supply chain challenges of doing that get manifested in higher costs. So that's part of what we're seeing. We're still working through that. It's still the case even a year and a half out, we're spending 10 to 15% more through grocery outlets than we were prior to the start of the pandemic. So that's part of it. But it's more than that. 
part of it is we have higher retail food prices because we have higher farm commodity prices. So by farm commodities, I mean things like corn and wheat and hogs. Those really took a dip at the onset of the pandemic, but have just experienced some enormous increases really since the summer and reaching levels that we haven't seen in about a decade. And by the way, those prices we saw about a decade ago were about the highest we'd seen in a really long time. So that maybe pushes the question back further. Why are we seeing higher farm commodity prices? And again, it's a multifaceted answer, but a couple of reasons. One is China. We're exporting a lot more to China at the moment. They're buying a lot of corn, buying a lot of pork. And part of that is because they've made their way, you know, out of the pandemic challenges. Part of it is residual working back out of the trade war issues we had under the Trump administration and some of the commitments actually China had made during that trade war, they're now kind of delivering on. And so that that extra demand is pulling up farm commodity prices. Another couple of factors there, we had some adverse weather conditions last year. So there was this so-called derecho storm that they had in Iowa last year. And then there was a dry spell that reduced the supply corn and soybeans here in the U.S. and then South America, which is another big producer of of corn and soybeans, also had some weather conditions. So just inventory supply is relatively lower. So you put those two things together. Then maybe one final thing is we're kind of coming out of the, hopefully coming out of the pandemic. A lot of corn goes to ethanol. So 40% of corn goes to feeding animals. Another 40% roughly goes to ethanol production. So as people are driving more, getting back out on the road, that's pulling up demand for corn as well. So what what we see is really across the board on most of the major agricultural commodities is prices getting pulled up. So, you know, roughly a double where they were earlier this summer and probably 50% higher than where we were just at the start of the year. Maybe one last thing, I know I'm kind of rambling on here a little bit, but labor issues. I mentioned costs in the supply chain, but one big part of that is the price of labor and it's a little paradoxical if, if you look at the data, employment is actually down in, in a lot of food sectors. So food processing, certainly in restaurants, but also even in retail grocery. But wages have been increasing quite dramatically in some of those sectors. I say it's a bit paradoxical because you'd say if wages are increasing, why aren't, you know, why aren't we adding more workers? And I think that's the a bit of the challenge we're in at the moment is people are having a hard time finding workers to show up. I think some of that is a manifestation of how generous our unemployment benefits have become among other factors. Maybe some workers may be, you know, fearful of getting back out to work. You know, maybe it's just reallocating labor from one sector of the economy to another. But I think, you know, one of the explanations there has to be that with the stimulus checks we've had and with the rise in unemployment benefits, people can, you know, have been able to stay at home and make a pretty decent living, at least relative to the wages that get paid in some of the food processing and food retailing sectors. But that's kind of a mix in the sense that if you're the worker who's now going to get paid more money, that's cool. But it also means that there may be a shortage of labor and if you're a small business trying to make ends meet, if you don't have a ability to raise prices, the squeeze gets very real. I mean, how does that ultimately sort itself out? Yeah, you know, I think this was an issue that came up when there was some debate earlier in the year about raising the federal minimum wage. And you're right. If you're fortunate enough to keep your job, good for you <laughs> when wages rise. The challenge, of course, is particularly among the unskilled workers that if you don't have a job, then you know you don't get to capture the benefits of those higher wages. 
you don't reap those benefits. As a business owner, those costs have to go somewhere. And despite, I think, what sometimes gets written about in the media, you know, these are not high margin businesses, particularly in food retailing, food manufacturing, restaurants. You know, these are very low margin businesses. And so I don't think we can expect a lot of these businesses to simply absorb the cost and go on. They don't have a lot of you know, market power, so to speak. So what happens is somebody has to pay the bill and it's the customer often that picks up the tab for that in the form of higher food prices. And that's what we're starting to see a little bit at the moment. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Finding the right news podcast can feel like dating. It seems promising until you start listening. When you hit play on Post Reports, you'll get fascinating conversations and sometimes a little fun, too. I'm Martine Powers. And I'm Elahe Azadi. Martine and I are the hosts of Post Reports. The show comes out every weekday from The Washington Post. You can follow and listen to Post Reports wherever you get your podcasts. It'll be a match, I promise. I've been very struck. Cluster and I were in Rome for three and a half years while she was being ambassador to the Vatican. And when we came home, one of the most striking changes was the number of people who were having groceries delivered at home. Does that become a profit center for the grocery stores, or is it just a necessary cost in order to be competitive? A little bit of both. I think even prior to the pandemic, there was an increasing trend towards more food buying online. Some of that was you know, even purchases through companies like Amazon and being delivered direct to our houses, but then also the pickup services where you go to the grocery store and pick up the groceries you've ordered online. And then with the pandemic, that just jumped to a whole new level. And you know, it depends on different data sets you look at, but you know, at any one point in time, if you ask people if they bought food online, you get you know from a quarter to a half of people saying they've done that over the past month. And so, yeah, I mean, actually, if you're a big food retailer, a big grocery, you you kind of have to offer those services now if you want to be competitive. 
early on, maybe a couple of years ago, it was more of a differentiating factor. You know, it was a way to maybe capture some premium or some profit to offer some convenience to some of your customers. But it's, it's actually, I, I think at the moment, probably hard to be competitive if you're not doing those things. And indeed, you think about the extra labor that goes into that. You got somebody you know, an extra person you're having to pay in the store to go around and stock items, package them for each individual customer, then carry them out to your car. So there are extra labor costs that are in there. And that's, you know, gets back to this discussion that we just had earlier about rising wage rates and cost of labor. When you think about all this, I'm old enough. I lived through the sort of stagflation and all that. But as I look at the numbers right now, this is very modest inflation compared to what we ended up with late in the Jimmy Carter years. What do you see as a probable pattern over the next year or two as the economy shakes itself out and the unemployment numbers, the extra money begins to stop, et cetera? I mean, do you expect, not to put words in your mouth, but somewhere between no inflation and really dramatic inflation? I mean, where would you put it? It's a good question. And boy, my crystal ball is a bit cloudy. So you're right. If you look at the overall inflation rate, so this would include food and everything, you know, year over year, we were about 2.6% last month. So as you mentioned, in historical terms, that's very within, you know, standard conditions. One of the things we've probably got accustomed to over the last five, even 10 years is that inflation has has been really low. So, you know, over the past decade, it averaged probably 1.7% or so on a year over year increase. So we're running higher than where we've been for the last decade. I think that's part of what the response is we're seeing out there at the moment is we've had unusually low rates of inflation, even though we have what I'd call at the moment kind of low to modest rates of inflation. It's much higher than we've been seeing. So all that sort of maybe on the positive side of things, maybe more worrying, you know, the trend at the moment is really for the past six or seven months, ever steady increasing rates in inflation from month to month. So, you know, the trend is certainly very, very positive at the moment, even though we're still probably at an overall low level. The other things that I think are a little worrying at the moment are if you look at money supply, for example, so the Federal Reserve tracks the supply of money in the economy, and that's also increased quite significantly. Again, as we've had extra stimulus payments, as we're talking about these huge infrastructure bills, you know, those kinds of things, I think, have some economists worried that you add all this extra money in the economy, that's going to make the value of any individual dollar fall, which is what, you know, inflation is essentially. And so, you know, we're not there yet. We're not, we're not anywhere close to the 70s. But I think there are some signs that have at least a few economists worried at the moment. I should say on the food side of things, by the way, back in the early stages of the pandemic, so about a year ago, March of 2020 to April of 2020, that monthly change in food prices at that point, that monthly change was the highest monthly change we'd seen in food prices since the 1970s. And we really haven't you know, come down back off of that. So with that really big monthly spike, and then it's been sort of slow and steady increases since then. And so we're certainly nowhere near the 70s at the moment, but I think that it's something we definitely want to keep an eye on and, and make sure that we don't get there because I think it is challenging if we do get into this inflationary spiral. I can't quite get a feel for it. I mean, it seems to me that Larry Summers, the former president of Harvard and former secretary of the Treasury, who is a liberal Democrat, his warnings that the sheer volume of liquidity about to be dumped into the system, given everything else that's underway, should almost certainly have some kind of inflationary impact. Some other folks have written, who are equally prestigious, 
that actually they think the system can more than absorb another couple trillion dollars. Where do you come down on that? How much do you think we're faced with that kind of additional spending inevitably cheapening the value of the dollar? There seems to be a bit of a divide amongst economists at the moment in terms of whether and to what extent this extra money that's going to hit our economy is going to have some impact. I mean, as for me, I think it's hard to imagine it not having some impact. I mean, if you just believe in basic supply and demand, if you increase the supply of money in federal spending, that has to have some impact. I think the question is, is it going to have an unduly inflationary sort of impact or something that's a bit more modest. And I think the people that think it's going to be a bit more modest seem to have a lot of faith that our Federal Reserve can rein things in if it's if inflation starts getting out of control, that they can raise interest rates or that they have other levers they can use to get the economy back under control. And maybe they're right. I mean, I'm not a macro economist. I tend to focus on food and ag. That's my beat. But I still do believe in just basic fundamentals of economics and supply and demand. And and again, if you increase that supply of money, it's got to go somewhere. The, The other statistic that I think, you know, has been really interesting for me to see is if you look at savings rates. So right now we're in a recession, according to most official statistics, but it's a very, very unusual recession. You know, it's not a recession that has been caused by, you know, a financial crisis or by a collapse in consumer demand. It's a pandemic. And so you can pump a lot of stimulus money into the economy, but if people are unable or unwilling to go out and spend it, the money just sits there. And so one measure that the Federal Reserve puts out there is a savings rate. And you might think in a recession, what are people going to do? It's a bad time. People are going to pull money out of savings. But that's actually not what's happening. If you look at savings rates, savings rates are increasing, have been increasing since the pandemic started, and even at the moment are still sitting at you know, well above historical averages. So that money is sitting out there. Maybe is one thing that's causing some of the rise we've seen in the stock market over the past year or so. So, you know, again, if we kind of get this pandemic under control, people are sitting on extra savings, that's even more demand that's going to get dumped on the economy. And so, you know, I'm anticipating more inflation along the lines of what we've seen. Is it going to get, you know, to 70s levels? I don't think we're there yet, but I certainly see the conditions are there that we could have more inflation than we're seeing at the moment. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. 
Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Turns and conditions apply. Finding the right news podcast can feel like dating. It seems promising until you start listening. When you hit play on Post Reports, you'll get fascinating conversations and sometimes a little fun, too. I'm Martine Powers. And I'm Elahe Azadi. Martine and I are the hosts of Post Reports. The show comes out every weekday from The Washington Post. You can follow and listen to Post Reports wherever you get your podcasts. It'll be a match, I promise. I was very struck. We just bought a house, and the combination of relatively easy money, low interest rates, and the tax structure of California and New York has just flooded South Florida with people who have then, of course, promptly driven up the price of housing, but also in parallel, even more than the price of housing itself, is the price of timber and of products that go into houses. And I think this is why Warren Buffett the other day said that we were now in an inflationary spiral and that they fully planned to pass on any price increase because they didn't see any other way to deal with it. But when you look worldwide, I'm not so sure that you're going to have an economy, and a larger global economy, that's going to sustain that kind of price increases because it seems to me that we have had an unusual ability partly by being the world's key currency, to generate resources in a way that almost nobody else can. And so these other countries, I think, are going to be trapped into slower growth, less inflation, but also less employment. And that'll have some impact on the whole system and may have some impact on food commodity prices, just because some of the markets may not be there and because other places may be dumping product because they just have, they're desperate for money. I mean, do you see much of that kind of behavior? Yeah. Well, so the corollary to that on the food and ag side is farmland market is pretty hot right now. So again, I think it kind of gets back to the same idea when there's money floating around out there, it's going to try to find, you know, people are going to try to put it in assets that are relatively fixed in supply. And, and you know, at least in this country, we're not going to have a lot more farmland. And, and so that the prices of those get, tend to get bid up. And, and that's sort of what we're seeing at the moment. You know, one thing about food, I think that that is, you know, somewhat unique is everybody has to eat. The other thing I think that's really important on the global stage is that there's a general relationship between income and food consumption and lower income countries, lower income households spend a larger percentage of their income on food. So we, we tend to be blessed in this country, in the United States, to have fairly high income. And as a result, we spend a fairly small share of our income on food, roughly 10%, depends on which number you look at. But you go to a lot of other developing countries, you know, they may spend you know, 30, 40, sometimes even 50%. And those are the lower income countries. So when we talk about these rises in commodity prices, earlier I was talking about the increase in corn and soybean prices. And you might think that's U.S. prices, and it is. But these agricultural commodity markets are really global markets. A lot of trade in food and agricultural markets. The U.S. is a net exporter of agricultural products, meaning we send far more agricultural products abroad than we import. So we really do, in many ways, feed the world. 
and when those commodity prices increase, it really hits people in lower income countries much more heavily even than it does for us because they're spending a much higher share of their income on food. So I, I think that's, you know, just on the global stage and, and when we talk about food price and commodity price increases, I think, you know, the consequences are really different for different parts of the world. And I think in some ways, particularly, you know, worrying and concerning whenever we get commodity price increases because of what it does to some of the people in some of the most impoverished places in the world. You raise a really sensitive and frankly infuriating topic. We were pretty close to somebody you may know, Kip Tom, who's a farmer and became the American representative to the Food and Agriculture Organization. And he would talk about how much the Europeans were opposed to modern agriculture and tried to impose their political views on very poor countries, for example, in Africa, where in effect they were being denied the scale of production they would get with American seeds, etc., and were in effect protecting people as they died of starvation. I mean, it's really weird. Do you have any communication with colleagues in Europe and any sense of why they are so opposed to modern agriculture? I do. Well, you mentioned Kip. I know him. I've been on his farm. In fact, the last time I was there, I gave a talk for his organization, and he was he was still in Rome, so he was Skyping back in or Zooming back into his farm meeting there. So it's great to have ambassadors like that in the world. And yeah, I've spent time in Europe. I spent a sabbatical there, and yes, they, you know they are very very much protectionist, more protectionist of their agricultural sector. In some ways, it's because they can afford to be that way. I mean, you know, I mentioned earlier they they also spend a relatively low share of their income on food and you know they tend to have some ideals of, of this traditional sorts of food that they want to preserve and all that's fine and well i suppose as long as they're willing to pay for it the challenge as you mentioned is when, when you kind of impose those perspectives on other countries and we see that play out it's a really challenging issue i think in food and agriculture is you know you can basically hold up any number of things whether it's you know genetically engineered seeds or certain herbicides or any number of other practices as a safety measure maybe an environmental concern but you can do that under the guise of protectionism essentially and, you know, is it one or the other? Hard to tell, but certainly something that happens a lot. And for a lot of the African countries, they're much closer to Europe geographically. And so Europe is a much more important export destination for them. And so in many ways, European farm and food policy affects Africans much more than us. And again, I don't want to impose on Africans our particular way of farming either. But I think they ought to at least have the same tools <laughs> that we have available to us. Whether they choose to use them or not, I think is really up to them. But I think to deny them the same kinds of technologies that we have available to us here in this country is, I think, a point of view that I just really can't get on board with. Do you get a sense of, is it primarily driven by ideology rather than, say, economic self-interest? Yes. I mean, I think, again, I think there's a kind of an agrarian ideal in, in some ways that some view that maybe agriculture in the 19, early 1900s was at some kind of ideal state or, you know, and if we could just get ourselves back to this type of agriculture, we'd be better off. But I think that belies, if you look at the data, you know, we've had an enormous increase in the world population since, you know, the earlier part of last century. And actually, despite 
sort of the Malthusian concerns that we wouldn't be able to feed this growing world population, we've been able to do it. In fact, we've been able to make food more affordable for most consumers. And the way we've been able to do that is by being innovative, by having universities like Purdue, where I work, developing new technologies and trying to you know disseminate those technologies to farms. We've actually not only been able to feed a growing world population, feed it better actually, in, in more ways than we have. And so, I mean, my one fear, I think one concern I'd have is if we're going to turn our backs now on these technologies that have enabled this, this kind of prosperity that we've had, I think that's particularly concerning for the future. And I think it's not just a concern about larger world population and the ability to feed it, but it's, it's also, you know, a lot more concerns these days about sustainability. And, and maybe even if we don't need more food, if we can produce the same amount of food we have now, but using less land and less water and, and, you know, less energy, you know, that's, that's a win too, but, but you need technology, you need innovation, you need entrepreneurship to do all those things. And so, yeah, it's, it's nice. I think to have these quaint views of agriculture, um, there's a place for that as long as people are willing to pay for it. But I think we got to understand there's trade-offs to that kind of form of agriculture. And we got to be careful about those trade-offs, particularly when they cause higher prices and think carefully about who, who it is that's paying those higher prices. Yeah, because very often it strikes me it's the poorest of the poor who ultimately get trapped in this system and can't break out of it. If you look at some of the poorest societies in the world, they're often you know, agrarian societies. Um, a lot of the labor still in agriculture. And you know, we're fortunate in countries like the United States that you know, we, it was painful probably for a lot of folks at the time. It's, it's the history of my family that I look at grandparents on both sides of my family. They were dirt poor farmers. <laughs> you know, my parents, as I mentioned earlier, were school teachers. You know, they kind of moved off the farm and did something different. So our, we've been able to grow our economy we created opportunities for people off the farm as we developed. And so I think really the answer to development isn't to put more labor back into agriculture. It's to find opportunities for people to expand and use their talents in other ways. If we're going to do that, by the way, we've got to have the more modern farming technologies to enable that kind of prosperity to grow. And so, you know, that's really the path to development is not a move towards more a more agrarian economy, but towards a more modern economy and, and finding ways to feed ourselves with fewer people. Listen, thank you. This has been absolutely fascinating. You're in an area, I think people, this is one of the things that Kip kept trying to say to me over and over again, that this is one of the most exciting and technologically advanced areas of the American economy and that we're doing just more and more amazing things, often with fewer resources. And so, you know, you're part of that revolution. You're a great institution for providing leadership for agriculture in the Midwest. So it's really great that you would spend time with us. Yeah, I appreciate you having me on. I want to thank my guest, Dr. Jason Lusk. We'll have a link to his website with all of his research on our show page at newtsworld.com. We'll also have a link to his most recent book on Naturally Delicious. You can read more about the recent rise in prices on our show page at newtsworld.com. Newt's World is produced by Gingrich 360 and iHeartMedia. Our executive producer is Debbie Myers. Our producer is Garnsey Sloan, and our researcher is Rachel Peterson. The artwork for the show was created by Steve Penley. Special thanks to the team at Gingrich 360. If you've been enjoying Newt's World, I hope you'll go to Apple Podcast and both rate us with five stars and give us a review so others can learn what it's all about. Right now, 
Listeners of Newt's World can sign up for my three free weekly columns at gingrich360.com slash newsletter. I'm Newt Gingrich. This is Newt's World. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts, if you dare. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. We are the voice of NASCAR. The green flag is in the air, and we are underway. The great American race. The Motor Racing Network. NASCAR Cup, Xfinity, and Craftsman Truck Series Racing. Live on your hometown radio station and MRN or NASCAR.com. Martinsville, Talladega, the Chicago Street Course. We have the side-by-side action, and last lap passes for the win. Photo finishes. Ryan Blaney will win. The voice of NASCAR, the Motor Racing Network work. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350 plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip-hop beats and more on the iHeart Radio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play.